So hello and welcome to this week's episode of the new PNL Principles and Leadership in Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, host of the new PNL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or another platform, please do take a moment to review us and subscribe to us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to keep up to date with all the latest news and initiatives and episodes of the new PNL, please also go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe to the newsletter. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We believe business needs a new PNL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week, we speak to Jen Duplessis. Jen is known as America's Mortgage Mastery Mentor, a title hard-earned over a stellar 37-year career, where she was consistently listed in the top 1% of highest performers in the US mortgage industry. Jen is also the host of two hugely successful podcasts, Mortgage Lending Mastery and Success to Significance, Life After Breaking Through the Glass Ceiling. And she's a best-selling author of Launch, how to take your business to new heights. Jen is a regular contributor to some of the US's most recognized news channels, newspapers, and industry journals. And she's also a charismatic keynote speaker, presenting extensively across the US and sharing the stage with personal development icons like Tony Robbins and Les Brown. So Jen, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you so much. I am so excited to share whatever you're going to be asking me in the time that we have together. I can't wait. Thank you very much. Um, you are known as America's Mortgage Mastery Mentor. Um, so it'd be great, I think, to set context for the podcast by giving listeners a bit of an overview as to what you have done, but also what you do now and, and who you do that for. Yeah. Well, I mean, for 35 years, I was in the mortgage space, um, retired or transitioned. I shouldn't say retired. <laughs> transitioned two and a half years ago into full-time coaching, speaking, podcasting. Um, I'm also an author of the book, Launch, How to Take Your Business to New Heights. Mm -hmm. And um, I've collaborated on several other books, um, one of which uh, was released just last week called Win or Learn. Uh Top mortgage executives bear their souls. That's basically what it is. And uh, it was a collaboration of 14 women. So that was kind of fun. Um, so we're excited about that. And, uh, but you know, but if for 35 years, that's what I did is I did mortgage lending and, you know, I planned to get out um, on my terms and uh, did. And now I'm just, you know, again, doing full time everything that I've been doing for part time for about 20 years now. So, mm -hmm. This is just a natural progression for me, um, you know, into what I'm doing now. So, over your 37 year career, you've built a very successful and respected position in the mortgage and real estate industry. You've funded, as it says in your bio, over a billion dollars in mortgage loans, which is quite staggering, really. Um, and it's consistently placed you uh, within the top 200 of mortgage originators or lenders in the country over many, many years. However, when we had our, our pre-briefing call for this podcast, you also mentioned you had rather humble beginnings. So, you know, yeah. a, billion, a billion dollars in mortgage loans is a, 
as a far and a long way from uh, from humble beginnings. We all have internal voices and some are stronger than others. And most of us are susceptible to imposter syndrome in one way or oh, another. Yeah. <laughs> how did you find the determination and the resilience and the strength to go from those humble beginnings to, to the top of your industry and stay there? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. Um, you know, I have to be honest, I'm still struggling with limiting beliefs. I think that we all do, you know, and I think they shift and especially, you know, the imposter syndrome. In fact, I just had it yesterday. I said, Ooh, am I really as good as I think I am today? You know, and you, you challenge yourself all the time, but yes. you know, my humble, humble beginnings began, um, you know, with, um, I'm going to just quick, tell a quick story. I was nine years old and my father was an alcoholic. My mother was a verbal abuser. And uh, I came into the house and could hear them outside yelling and screaming. They were always fighting. And my father had a shotgun to my mother's head. And uh, that was the day that things changed. That was the apex of what was going to be with the rest of my life. Um, it wasn't going to be uh, what it is now, and I'll explain that too. But, but um, you know, I'm one of 37 first cousins. My uncle uh, told me, you know, Jenny, you're going to be just like them. You're going to be poor. You're going to smoke. You're going to drink. You're going to be worthless, basically, telling me that I was going to be worthless. And he called me Jenny, who ain't got a penny. So I used to carry a penny in my shoe, and I'd show it to him because I didn't really understand the concept. Um, so the accumulation of being told that and then experiencing this, and I was an only child at the time and experiencing all this on my own, you know, I ran from the house, obviously, and ran into a cornfield and just prayed that I wouldn't hear that shotgun go off. Yes. And that was the moment that I said, you know, um, this has to change. I'm going to prove to everybody. So I spent my entire life proving to everybody and it wasn't till later in my life that I said you know I have to stop proving and start living yeah. but that's really where it started and I'm thankful for that now because it wouldn't have given me the drive that I have now and I could have ended up Jenny and who ain't got a penny having that experience as a nine-year-old is a horrendous thing for any child to experience yeah you yeah. made there was a life changing moment but it's a very long time between nine and let's say 18, 19, 20, when you have a, a more mature ability to, to take that experience and develop it into a career. What were yeah. the mechanisms that you developed between nine and 18 or 19 or 20 to, to keep that motivation going? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, part of it was proving, right? Yes. <laughs> Which is, that was what, what it was, is proving. But, uh, you know, it gave me incredible drive. It, uh, you know, I think the other part too is that I had a, and this is typical of uh, children of uh, alcoholics or, you know, family members of alcoholics is uh, that strive for perfection because if I'm perfect, he won't drink. Mm -hmm. If I do everything right, he won't drink, right? So I became the best of everything everything in sports, music. I was in uh, a um, Miss, Miss uh, Colorado, you know, beauty contest. Everything that I did was to, to be perfect. And, uh, you know, so that was a struggle. And of course you can never be perfect, right? So that drive just kept going. And then through that, um, you know, the success came. And so I thought the success was because I was driving <laughs> so much, right? But it turns out that what I had created in the path of doing that was uh, systems and habits that reflected that of successful people. Mm 
-hmm. that was by wasn't by design it was by default right yeah there's a quite a common parlance in business now where it suggests you you deliver 80 percent of what you feel is acceptable and then you iterate and you iterate and you iterate because perfection isn't achievable you've talked about always wanting to be the best or, or perfect how did you balance those two how did you measure what that perfection looked like for you if if perfection is unachievable yeah well at the time i didn't really understand that it was you know and and so later on in my career and this is before i really started becoming i was always in the top one percent but mm -hmm. but really coming into the top 200 was that you know, I was a me. I was I wouldn't say mediocre. I was in the top one percent, but I was I was okay. I was producing okay, but I was running a hundred miles an hour, trying to constantly achieve that perfection. You know, proving to everybody that I could do this. Um, particularly in a man's world, you know, that was really when I first started, it was really a man's world, and so I was always just really trying to prove that. But I was wearing myself down at the same time, you know, and and uh, you know. So I had an episode that happened, you know, later on, this was probably 15 years ago or so. And I was uh, supposedly at dinner with my family um, and at, at the restaurant and the phone rang and I went outside and answered the call and walking that concrete balance beam, right? We all know that one where we walk back and forth while we're talking and waving to people as they're walking in. And I happened to glance over into the restaurant and notice that my family was having dinner, creating memories, laughing, having a wonderful time, but it wasn't with me. I wasn't in it. I wasn't in those memories. I wasn't there. I had chosen my clients over my family and I had chosen my clients over my life. And I had chosen this, this drive to prove over everybody else. And I realized that I could never achieve that perfection. I could never truly make them happy. Uh, my uncle or anybody else that I needed to make me happy. Yeah. And so that was, that was the changing point for me saying that um, you know, I didn't need to be perfect. I just needed to be uh, good enough, right, to be happy in my life. And what ended up happening after I developed, you know, and solved the problem and cracked the code on how to do it and still mm -hmm. have a life, uh, my volume doubled. Wow. But my time didn't. Yes. Yeah. And that's when I went into the top 200. Yeah. So when I actually sat back a little bit, I achieved so much more than just the constant grind. Yeah. One of the, the myths of entrepreneurialism, and I'm sure it'll be familiar with many of our listeners today, is that you're a self-made woman or man, but in fact, we all make it with the support of a, a network of people at various levels and various times of our lives. I wondered if there are certain people in your life who you feel at milestone periods over that 37-year career have given you the support that you needed to get over that over that barrier at that point yeah um yes and i will tell you who that is in a moment but i feel like for me it was an inside job yeah um not that i did it it was an inside job i had to fix me before i could even go outside right mm -hmm. to even ask for help because i lived in a world of scarcity although i felt it was abundance it's I'm good. I don't need your help. I got it. I'm strong. And it was actually scarcity. And so as soon as I became more vulnerable, which is really abundance, yeah. when I became more vulnerable, um, that's when I was open to receive 
something from someone else. But all of my life, and I mean all, because I met my husband when I was 14 in high school. We're still married today. And uh, but all my life, he has been my rock. He has been the one that supported me. And, and I have always said, and I even said it in my book, is it takes a very strong man to support a woman, but it takes an even stronger man to support a very strong woman. And he's always been there encouraging me. And he was the one that said, you know, you're, you have to live your life for you and not for everybody else. And I heard it, but I didn't do it until that one moment outside that restaurant. And he's always been supportive for me. To reach the top of any industry, any sport, whatever it happens to be, is an extraordinary achievement. To maintain that position is something in addition. I wondered what you felt the, you've been in the 1%, you've been in the top 200. I wondered what your feeling was in terms of the characteristics of high-performing individuals. What do you what do you need yeah. to get there? And more importantly, what do you need to stay there? Yeah. So the first thing I would say, and, and this is what I coach on with my clients, is um, assessing your core values. I, I really believe that a life of values adds value everywhere in your life. And I think that we all have values. We just don't recognize them. We don't turn to them for advice. Um, it helps us make decisions. You know, you can reflect on your core values and say, is you know, and you make better decisions, you make them faster and you make them better for yourself. Yes. And so it really, you know, I believe starts with core values. Then it's protecting those core values or creating boundaries around them. So for example, if your family is a core value, then why are you working all hours? Mm-hmm. You don't have the boundaries around it. You haven't set up the, the discipline to tell other people that you have another appointment with your family, right? And so for me, it was getting, getting that in alignment. And I, and I always say this too, is that when you master your priorities, you master your life. And so I had to master my priorities and not let outside influences dictate how I was going to operate. And mm-hmm. so it, yes, it's discipline. It's habits, creating really, really good, strong habits. But then for me, it was learning, you know, developing and learning these five core attribute, attributes for me that I now teach and, and share with everyone else on exactly how I became um, someone who attracts clients rather than someone who chases them so that I can save time, yeah. uh, you know, living my legacy while I'm building my legacy and working on purpose so I can play with passion. Yes. You highlighted the moment outside the restaurant when you look back in and your family were enjoying that time and and you weren't part of that because your mind was in work and you've just talked about now about core values and one of those being family what's your view on whether broadly speaking in business this pandemic (laughs) will shift people's mindset in terms of the relationship as business people they have with their family and also those employers and the recognition that family needs to play a bigger role in order for them to have better employees Well, you know, I hope that's happening in the business sector. (laughs) I really am. I don't know if it is. Um, You know, I think when we came into the COVID cocoon, so speak, right? When we came into this cocoon, um, we were running, everybody was running 100 miles an hour and we had this big slowdown, you know, and it was an opportunity for this growth to happen within this cocoon. And, um, you know, and I think that people did recognize that family was more important, but as time goes on, here's what I'm seeing now. All of the colleagues that I work with and that I, you know, I'm having all these 
conversations with all the time, they're actually working more than they were before. So we've gone full circle. And so the question is, when this cocoon finally decides to open up, is this? are you going to be a butterfly? Are you going to be in a position where you can go and soar? Or are you going to be shriveled up, right? So I'm a little concerned that um, for a while it was about family, and now it's become norm. And so family's being pushed aside. So I am a little concerned about <laughs> what's going to happen there, yeah. but I've always been in the belief of this. And, and, and I think everyone has it backwards. We focus so much on building our business and then allowing for our family to fit in. And I want to just, you know, reverse that, flip it inside out. We want to be real. It's like a, having a wheel on a car, right? The wheel is our life and the, and the tube around it, the tire around it becomes the buffer that, that saves our life. Yes. And when you start, when you do it the opposite way, when your business is the wheel and your life is on the outside and you keep running over nails and things like that, it gets worn down and it gets broken and all you have left is your business. So if we can flip that the opposite way and have your business protect your life, I, I think that we're going to be much happier in the long run. And if people, I hope people can start realizing that now to say that, that life is more sacred than the business. Yeah. And when, when you're focused, you can build an incredible business that doesn't need changing, doesn't need air. Right? You can build something beautiful around it, but the core is your life. I like the analogy of the wheel. I think that's a great, uh, a great example. The, yeah. the mortgage industry is, I think it's quite an interesting one because it's, yeah. it's largely transactional. Yes. The result of that financial transaction is has one of the biggest emotional impacts on an individual's life. You know, the, the desire to get a dream house, to, to security, to raise a family, whatever it happens to be, whatever their ambition is. How do you ensure that those who you train now in your seminars and workshops understand the value and importance of empathy within a transactional process? Yeah, well, and, and I'll tell you, I've always thought that, you know, um, I mean, I think that in a lot of sales, it is transactional. Yes. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, this one happens to be that. I think the reason that that mortgage and real estate uh, becomes more transactional is because it's not a repeatable process, mm -hmm. uh, you know, quickly. So it's not something that, you know, you buy shoes and then you have to buy more shoes. No. This is something that people tend to hold for a while. But there's a falseness in that because regardless of how long you think you'll be in your house or regardless how long you think you're going to have your loan, you debt, you refinance and you move. And so this is where I've said to people, you know, is that we and I would say is for any business, we tend to think that we get a lead and we close a deal. We get a lead and we close a deal. We close, you know, the sale and it's linear for people. And if we can think of it as an infinity sign, right? Mm -hmm. An infinity that we're bringing people in from the marketing perspective into our world. And then once they're in our world, we have to create an experience because the transactional is service. Yes. You're expected to go through the process, but there's nothing special about that. And so if you can develop an experience within that, you'll create loyalty to bring them back in again. And so I never call um, a, a loan, a transaction of family, you know, we call them families, mm -hmm. but when we finish closing a deal, right, end to end like that, I never call them past clients. I always call them alumni clients because they're always going to come back. And what does an alumni do? They tell everybody about their school. You got to go there. You got to go there. They're passionate about it and they bring money back. 
right? <laughs> they donate, they bring money back. And that means they're coming back into our cycle. So it becomes an infinity. And if I can get people to understand that, then it saves time with the uh, binoculars of what we do in sales of constantly looking for a new deal when we in fact have acres and acres of diamonds sitting, sitting right underneath us if we just nurture them rather than neglect them. Yeah. So. You, you mentioned earlier on about when you first started in the mortgage industry, it was very heavily male-dominated <laughs> industry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, did you experience sort of gender discrimination? And if so, how did you... How did you overcome that in your industry and how did you build your career with that sort of underpinning? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And, uh, and I have a couple of funny stories, but, but it is funny that you say that because yes, it's heavily male dominated. Uh, you know, the men were making all the money. They were wearing the three piece suits at that time. And, and the women were all in the secretarial, whatever they were all ops, you know, smart women, but in all ops. And I actually, the problem I had with that is that uh, my personality, hopefully hopefully that's shining through here, but I don't like talking to paper. I wanted to talk to people, right? So I needed to be out uh, with with doing what the guys were doing. So, you know, early on, it was so funny. We, um, I would go, there was a group of guys, these three guys, and now actually there's three women who are doing that now. And I'm one of them kind of going around the country and doing some seminars for women. And, uh, but they would do these seminars because, you know, this is before computers and phones, everything, you know, well, not phones, cell phones, we had pagers, but I was sitting in these meetings. And every time I went to the meeting, there were like a hundred people and maybe two women. And the guys were getting up constantly and looking at their pager and walking out of the meetings. And so when we had a break, we were all in line at the hotel going to a payphone, right? Because we were in line to the payphone. And I thought, well, I'll get in line too, because then I'll look per, you know, I'll look like I'm, I'm busy. And uh, so I stood in line and I, and I got on the phone and I, and, you know, at the time I had two little kids, you know, my husband, I'm on the phone and I'm like, Oh yeah, I can help you with that loan. And then I'd turn my head and go, we need diapers. We need milk. And then I go, uh-huh, I can help you with that. When are you, what are you buying? Okay, don't forget French fries too. Get them some French fries, right? And I was having this conversation on the side to make it look like I was important. So I said to my husband, I go, hey, next time I go, uh, page me five times. So I look like I'm busy too, right? But that, what happened, and so that was kind of my way, you know, to show, oh, look at me, I'm a woman and I'm doing all this business. What I actually realized, because later I ended up managing a plethora of these men, um, what I ended up realizing was that they didn't have control of their business, their business had control of them. And yeah. that's why they were getting up and running around. And I thought, well, that's sad. So I only want phone calls that come in for referrals. I don't want them coming in for every other piece. And that's really when I started developing my system. And then that allowed me to sell more. And so the result is when I was up for a promotion and I was overlooked because I was a woman, they weren't ready for a woman. I could lead with facts. Yes. And that's what I've always done is let me show you the numbers. Let me show you the facts because it's not about that, right? And so ultimately I won out and became, you know, management and, and senior management, but really my love was in helping people get homes. And I found that the sky was the limit when I did that. Um, and so, yeah, I was the token girl, 
at every meeting. I was a token girl at Thirsty Thursdays. And, you know, lots of comments, lots of comments. Um, I had a client once say to me, uh, we happened to be talking about my kids and I tried to not do that because I thought I got to be professional, more professional. And I was happened to be talking about my kids to somebody and he pushed his chair, he was sitting in a chair in another office. He pushed his chair and it slid across the hall into the room we were in. He said, you have kids? I said, yeah. And he said, well, if I had known that, I would have given you more business. God. And I thought, well, I didn't ask you if you had kids and I, what if I give you business? But then I went around and started talking about my kids, right? <laughs> And uh, so that's kind of the moral of the story. But yeah, there were plenty of times that I had the discrimination, the slide comments and things. But, you know, I was already strong. I was already in a proving mode. So there wasn't going to be anything that was going to hold me back. What would be the, as a result of your experiences, what would be some of the advice you would give to young female entrepreneurs <laughs> today? I don't know if you want to open up that box. <laughs> I am not. And by the way, the other women that, that wrote this book, we were all chatting about this. None of us are advocates of the Me Too movement. Um, and here's why. Now, I am an advocate of any sexual harassment, anything like that. I, I definitely am. And, I, and I'm empathetic to that. I'm sympathetic to it. But I think that it has created a world of victims and of weakness. And from coming from where we did, it's almost an insult to have someone come in and, and be entitled to a, a position to increasing a level. And it really frustrates people like us who worked really, really hard because it diminishes what we did. And so I don't say that I, I'm not for the whole me too, but I, and I would say that for men or women, because I think it can go both ways, but you know, put your money where your mouth is work your butt off. And then that's, that's going to show about, you know, about you. So that's the advice I'd say is, you know, forget any of this other victimness or anything, just put your, your nose to the grind and prove what you can do as an individual, regardless of gender. Yeah. You did prove what you could do with 1 billion US in loans <laughs> and an incredible yeah. achievement. Um, yeah. What I was interested in is understanding when when did you decide that was the target, if indeed you did? I How did. far away from that target were you when you decided? And what was the motivation to keep achieving it? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, so it was, it, was, it was definitely a target for me um, because all the men had done it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And I wanted to be the first woman who had done it. Um, and I did. And now there's, I think, three other women, but collectively there's less than 50 people. And when you're looking at, you know, Right now, we have a little over 500,000 loan officers in the country. Yes. Um, when you look at the achievement of how that is, right, yeah. And so it, it was a, another proving point. Mm -hmm. But now it was proving to the men that I could be just as good. Um, but it was also proving to myself that I could do it in a way that um, allowed for me to have a commanding personal life yes. in the process of it. Not balance. I don't believe in that. So I think you're just half at everything. But um, so that was part of it. Um, the other part was, you know, I started so young and I actually started even a few years younger and I don't call that my time in the business, but um, I started so young that after 35 years, well, it was really, you know, the pinnacle point was, um, I think I'd been in the business for 30 years and I was 
40, I, I can't remember, maybe 47. Yeah, because it'd be 40 years. Yeah, I was 47. And I thought, oh, I'm going to retire in 20 years, you know, at 65, 67. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be telling people that I'm in the business for 50 years. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And so I started creating that bridge and building that bridge of, you know, what would be on the other side for me mm-hmm. so that I could retire at my goal was to tire, retire at 55, a mm-hmm. billion dollars in funding and never say that I'm in the business for 40 years. So if any one of those would come up, I would be a happy camper. Yeah. Well, I, I met the 55. Uh, I met the billion and I thankfully didn't hit the 40. So that as soon as I hit, um, it was a billion five hundred and twenty-two thousand something. One loan in a month took me over that. Then it was time to go. Wow. Yeah. With such an enormous target, um, it's a long and interesting road to get there. Already. <laughs> a lot of work. Lots of challenges. Um, 2008 and the financial crisis being an obvious bump in that road. Was there any point where you thought, I'm not going to achieve that? And how did you overcome that, that voice in your head, if you like? Yeah, I actually never thought I would not achieve it. I think that um, at the time when the 20, you know, the the credit crisis hit, um, at that time, uh, I was, I had, I hadn't thought about it yet. It was just before I had that epiphany of doing that. I always felt like I would get there. It would just take a long time, right? Um, I changed my tactics. You know, principles never change, but tactics do. I changed my tactics and uh, started working more with, uh, and this was a limiting belief that I had to get past too, is here we were really poor all my life, right? And so I wasn't worthy of being, uh, having any money or anything. And I realized that I was already in the big the big boy, you know, top, top earners in the country, you know, I was already there. Why wasn't I helping them get mortgages too? And it was a limiting belief that I, I, Ooh, I'm not like them. I, I can't communicate with them, but, and that's not to, to belittle any, you know, any of the clients that were first time home buyers, which we still helped and everything, but I changed my target. I changed my target into high end loans because I had the same, financial concerns after the credit crisis. Um, I had the same, uh, you know, shifting and transition that was going on as, will we have to work till we're a hundred, <laughs> right? All of us, we all had that thought. Um, and, and then the, the problems that those individuals have, you know, with trusting people to place their money and, and all of that, you know, and really trying to find life, you know, we're, we're building that legacy, but we're just not living it. And so I thought, well, that's where I'm going to go because I speak their language. And so I shifted that and went into jumbo financing and that helped me get there faster. But there was joy in doing that just as much as there was joy in the first time home buyer. But there was joy in doing that because I could turn something that was very complex, you know, the complexity of a financial picture or DNA of someone who makes more money um, into simplistic uh, and a simplistic and simplistic way to grow wealth through a mortgage, as opposed to having it be a glorified rental for everybody and create wealth on the side for them by having them be investors, you know, or tapping into financial planners to help them uh, really create and manifest more wealth for themselves. Uh, you know, and I just found that a lot of people in that place never really had the education by their parents on how to do that. And so they were trusting and failing with a lot of people. And so uh, collaborating with other financial experts to be able to pull that in, 
And then the last part about that is as a mortgage lender, you work in the financial sector. You don't work in the housing sector. And I think most loan officers think that they're in housing because they're working with realtors. And realtors don't know anything about finance. They, they know, you know, a certain percentage of the purchase price means money in their pocket. <laughs> That's what they know. So I thought, well, let me go talk their language and speak their language and, you know, really climb to a new altitude with um, how I ran my practice, you know, as a certified mortgage planner. Yeah. You touched on a point at the front end of that answer about the internal voice and your mm-hmm. belief about your unworthiness for money. Yeah. And that's uh, for those of us, for those entrepreneurs that are from the working class environment in particular, that is a massive problem and a massive challenge for lots of us. Was there a moment when you realized that you all of a sudden felt worthiness when it came to money or was it a gradual process or how did you, how did you work your way through that? Yeah. I mean, it's really been a gradual process. I think it's also been, you know, um, a lot of prayer, a lot of meditation on defining what the triggers are that pop me back into that mode of I'm not worthy Um, and, and self-sabotage, you know, I think what happened, Happens a lot of times when people are in this position. I know for me, it, I went through that where I can make money, but I don't can't necessarily keep it. Yes, it's spent before it's there, right? And that's part of it's not it's not a, a want and and all that. It's part of the internal subconscious saying you can't have it, so get rid of it, mm-hmm. right? I had to get through that, and really. Um, you know, embarking on that from a business perspective way back was seeing um, the snobbiness and it was never my way. And so I think part of it was I didn't want to go into that jumbo world or into the world of high finance because I didn't really like those people. Mm-hmm. I felt that they were kind of like my uncle, right? <laughs> and I didn't really like those people. Um, but then I realized, you know, that I am those people and there's got to be other people out there that are like me that aren't, aren't like that, right? And mm-hmm. so that was part of it. Um, but it wasn't until just recently, my, my uh, mother passed away four years ago and my father passed away um, eight or nine years ago, something. And um you know, I wish they were here so that I could let them know that, well, and I don't even really have to let them know. I finally forgave. Yes. Again, it was an inside job because when you tell someone that you forgive them, you're making amends when, and and that's great, but they don't even know. Right. But I finally forgave them. And I finally forgave that uncle. And when, in fact, when I wrote this book, uh, I don't name him in it, but I tell the story. And when I gave him, I sent him the book, he called me and said, I'm that one, I'm that uncle, aren't I? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I want you to know I'm, I'm extremely proud of you. And I needed that vindication. Yeah. I just did. But I was still mad at him for saying it right. It wasn't until quite frankly, last year with a lot of retreats and a lot of breakthroughs that I finally got to the point where I had the grace in myself to be able to forgive him and forgive myself for taking on his thoughts about money yeah. with me through my life. Yeah. And that's really the, the transition. So I do think it's, it, there's some points that are 
that happen, but I think it's just a time thing. And I think you always have to work on it. It's just not going to happen, but I'm acutely aware of triggers. And because I'm aware of those triggers, I can say, get off me, get off, the, get off my back. You monkeys <laughs> get off my back. And I'm able to, to work through it. And it's just expanded my business, you know, in the last year and a half, uh, you know, and I'm happy with it and I'm, and I'm not sabotaging it. Yeah. In a broader business sense, regardless of industry, I wondered whether you thought leaders need a different set of skills as we work our way into the 21st <laughs> century. You know, we have lots of technology yeah. challenges and, and yeah. a much more fast-paced environment than we have ever faced, I think. Every generation has its challenges, but I think there are particular ones with us. Do we need different sets of skills as a leader, regardless of industry? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm laughing about that because I, I just see it all the time, you know, and actually it's what, what started this book that I wrote four years ago was I, I really want to just call it, well, I just wanted to strangle people, right? I wanted to strangle um, entrepreneurs because it was just a lot of talk and I wanted to call the book, shut up and go do it. Right. And then we changed it to stop talking, take action, get results. And then we changed it to, okay, well, it needs, that can be a subtitle, right? <laughs> Because for me, it was just a lot of yik yak. And, and then I started realizing, well, I wasn't talking. I was taking action, getting results, right? For whatever reason, I was doing it. And then I started thinking, well, why are they talking? Why can't they move forward, yeah. right, in, into that? And it made me realize that, you know, this, it's sometimes what happens is we come up to renewers because we have a passion. Sometimes it's because we have an idea but we don't have the skills and the tools and, and resources and we don't even look for them. We just think, especially, well, I'll just use lending. I think it's every business, but if you're, well, I'll use any business. If you're a great, a great plumber, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a great plumbing company owner. You have to develop the skills to do it. And it's not attrition. And that's why so many entrepreneurs and so many small businesses fail is because they don't have the skills to be leaders and managers. And it happens to be the topic that I'm working with my, um, all of my students with right now is the management cycle and situational leadership and, and really climbing to new altitudes in your personal um, ability to recognize and manage people. And one of the things that we know is emotional intelligence is directly correlated to money, to making more money. If that's your ambition, you know, is to make more money or have a better life, um, you know, with your family, it's directly related. It's not, it's not intellect, it's emotional intelligence. And this is called, you know, they call it knowledge brokering, right? It's, it's the knowledge industry now where we have to really be reading books. You know, the average, well, I know for US, I don't know for everybody, but the average, uh, I, how does the thing? Less than 3% of Americans read a book after high school. Wow. Less than 3%. And I'm an avid reader. I'm constantly trying to better myself. And so this whole era, I think this is an era, a new era of self-help, but redirected in being a knowledge broker, but like taking your knowledge and brokering it out to other people and giving it to other people so that they can excel. But you have to start with, you know, knowing that you're, you have to help put your mask on first, 
then help. Oh, and not that mask, <laughs> but put your mask on first so that you can help other people. And um, so, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that I'm seeing right now, virtually every summit that I'm on or conversation I'm ha having, we are talking, the big buzzword right now is leadership. It's yeah. a buzzword internationally. Yes. How do you lead other people out of these circumstances that we're in now? In a podcast I hosted a, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about exactly that. And I will cite the quote again because it, it's a great quote. And Harry um, Truman, not all readers lead, but all leaders read. And I yeah. think that's exactly to your point that one of the essence of leadership is to continually accrue that knowledge so you can impart that knowledge and understand and, and learn more about it. And I think it's a it's a fabulous quote that summarizes it, I think. Yeah, it definitely does, because that's where emotional intelligence comes in, right? It's yes. the recognition of, of problems and solutions in a, in a uh, group setting to elevate the entire group. Absolutely. And that's where, that's where the key is right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on, just before we sort of roll the podcast to a close, I wanted to touch on your own podcast, Success to Significance, and just understand a little bit behind what the motivation <laughs> was to launch it and, and what the key principles are that define it yeah well i actually have two podcasts so the first is mortgage lending mastery um mm -hmm. it is the oldest running podcast in that space in fact we're going to be celebrating six years on january 1st so i, I think i'm a veteran in podcasting because it's not mm -hmm. been around that long um you know and that podcast was because when i got in the top 200 people would call me and say can i ask you a question can i pick your brain and and i thought gosh well how am i going to be able to answer it because i'm on a roll here right how am i going to answer there are questions, and that's really when the podcast came out was a means to answer questions, and that obviously morphed into per personal and professional development, and so we're going strong there. And then when I made the transition, I knew that I had something else in, in because really when I was making the transition, while I knew definitively what I was going to do, I was going to continue to speak nationally and internationally, I was going to coach, I was going to uh, do my podcast, I, was, I had the book coming out, it had just come out before I left, and you know, I knew that I had that transition going, but as I was talking to many of my girlfriends, um, and it was just girlfriends for some reason, and yeah. then I realized, well, gosh, men are going through this, and now they are through COVID. Um, you know, tw 35 years of fighting and fighting, I was exhausted. But what was going to happen next? And I thought, where where does this go? And I thought, you know, so anyway, I was out, I was out, um, uh, networking and someone said to me and not too long after I transitioned said um, so what do you do and I go oh I'm a morgue uh, I don't know what I do what do I do now right I had this definition of success I mean that was me but really I was trying to shift to being significant making an impact change embarking my being a knowledge broker right to people and so I thought okay it's from success to significance and then that wasn't enough and I said well life after breaking through glass ceilings, because as I was talking to my girlfriends, I was saying, what's next for you? You've been doing it a long time. What are you going to do? Yeah. And unlike our mothers who waited, you know, were home every day after school, when we went to, went off to whatever, they finally went and got a job to find their mm -hmm. themselves, but it was a secretary and they couldn't wait to get back home. They couldn't wait for us to have children so they could yeah. babysit our grand, their kids our kids, their grandchildren. And that wasn't in my DNA. I love my grandkids, but I don't want to babysit them. 
right? So what happens after, you know, you've broken through all these glass ceilings and not just from a woman's standpoint or from a financial standpoint, but all the ceilings that we all break through, which is why I had you on the podcast, right? Because we have a story of, you know, losing weight or, um, you know, attempting or considering suicide or breaking through the things that I did. And I wanted to share that with people. And when it came out, it was proposed to come out in February this year. It actually came out a little later. Thank goodness it did because it's now, you know, part of COVID is we're all sitting and we're going, now what? Now what? And I want to be able to share with people that are thinking about it, people that have gone through it, are in it, and people that have come on the backside and what they can, you know, their knowledge that they can put to people to say, you know what, if you want to chase that dream, go chase that dream. But it's all, it's all about sharing that we're not an island, losing sleep at night, wondering what's next. You have a place where you can go and learn. Yes. Usually we finish the podcast by asking guests to give one or two pieces of advice to, to listeners, and, I, and I'm very happy <laughs> to do that. But I would like to first, given the nature of our conversation, ask a slightly different question. What would the gen of today say to the nine-year-old Jen who stood there experiencing what you did? <laughs> um, well, because I'm a grandma, well, let's see. The first thing that came into mind, the first thing that came into mind is you got this. Just go do it. Mm-hmm. You know you're smart. Take it Take it on. Yeah. Take it on. Uh, don't let anybody tell you anything. You know, and that's how I am now. I mean, I've got a lot of blinders on. I have blinders on. I'm, I'm, there's holes in them because I have coaches, but but uh, you know, I know where I'm going. Yes. Emphatically, and I and I work on purpose. I don't frivolously work. The grandma in me, because the kids, you know, with uh, Frozen, the movie would say, "Let it go, let it go, let it go." Right? Don't bring it in and carry that baggage. Yeah. for 50 years yeah and what advice would you like to give in a business context to entrepreneurs listening today and and business people yeah well i think i've given a ton of advice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's all kinds of pieces of advice but yeah. you know i would say this is slow it down to speed it up instead mm-hmm. of speeding up to slow down take some time to backtrack figure out what your core values are, figure out what your priorities are, figure out what's in alignment with your business instead of doing all the activities that you see everyone else doing. Figure out what you want. You may not want a big house. Don't don't make that a goal. You may not want to make a million dollars. Don't make that a goal. Don't don't let society tell you what that what success is. Figure out what it is for yourself and then put a plan in place that is guarded by boundaries. Yes. And guarded by plan and purpose and intention so that you're not eating soup with a fork every day and coming home and be exhausted from activities that don't have any purpose or any rhyme or reason being in what your goal is in life. Jen, for those who would like to purchase your book, listen to your podcasts, learn more about you, where can they go and find out more? Yeah. So, I mean, the best place to go is just go to jenduplessis.com. That's my website and there'll be links to all my social media. Um, and, you know, if you, if you want to get a book, you can text uh, launch to 66866 and you can pick up a book that way. And um, that's really the best way. And I'm pretty responsive. I own, I own a very boutique company. I don't want to have 
a big thing that takes me from where I want to be in my life now. So don't be surprised if I respond. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful. Thank you here. so much. What a pleasure to be on the show. It's so good to see you again. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about what Jen does, the coaching work she does, the personal development work she does, the consultancy, the podcasts, her book and her presentations, please go to jenduplessis.com. That's J-E-N-D-U-P-L-E-S-S-I-S.com. And you'll find the links to her website and to her podcasts and the notes that accompany this podcast as well. As I mentioned in the introduction, please do take a moment to review us. We genuinely appreciate it and it does make a difference. And if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter, go to principlesandleadership.com. So finally, I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening today. And please come back on Friday and listen to the new PL to the point, where over 10 minutes we will succinctly break down the key points from today's conversation with Jen and discuss what that means for us and our businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.